We tend to believe in all that we think, imagining patterns in all that we see. We try to find meaning in everything, but what do we really know? Just look a little deeper, question your thoughts. You know that this thinking ain't all that we've got. There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides. Letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. There's really no me, and there's really no you. These bodies are made up of bones and sinew. But open it up, and you won't find you. So what do we really know? Just look a little deeper, question your thoughts. You know that this thinking ain't all that we've got. There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides. Letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. We are just specks of stardust, all coated with life. Our wisdom's been sleeping, that's why it's a fight. Wake up to that house builder telling us lies about what we really know. Just look a little deeper, question your thoughts. You know that this thinking ain't all that we've got. There's a truer awareness when the thinking subsides. Letting go of ourselves, closing our eyes. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. It's in stillness the truth abides. Mm, thank you so much for coming today. We were working on the Dharma Hall, uh, the Vajra Hall, uh, the other day, and, and I wanted to redecorate and put some things in a little better order. And um, uh, Grace was uh, tending to that. So I went to check and see what was happening, how it was going, and when I went, it was more torn apart than it was in the beginning, because Grace was, uh, cleaning the place. She said, we can't put these new uh, things in without cleaning up first. 
You know, so sometimes when we're making progress, when we're stepping forward, we have to take, take one step back and just do a little housekeeping. And then we can go forward. We can go further. You know, um, uh, there's a, uh, a scripture I like in the Bible that says that, uh, that God said if you can't tolerate uh, chastisement, he said, then you're a bastard and none of mine. You know, and he was saying that we have to be really open that who, who one loves, you know, if they see them going afield, they correct, they bring back. You know, that's the story of the good shepherd who leaves, you know, who has a hundred sheep and he leaves the 99 to bring one home. He does it because he loves them. And so um, Sunday, the Dharma set us on its lap. I said, what's today? Tuesday? Yeah, so that was Sunday. Uh, he, he, the Dharma set us on its lap, and it nurtured us and cherished us, and I think it sort of entertained us. It was good. And sometimes when that happens, we come uh, to catch the next show, but that's not what this is today. I'm, I'm pre-framing. I'm, I'm setting you up. Today I'd like to talk about the forest and the manicured garden. <clears throat> because the Buddha provides a framework for living a successful life, but we have to, no, we have to put meat on the bones. It is just a, frame, a framework. There's really no ready-made formula or philosophy for how um, to make everything work in life the way we want to. So when we're looking for perfection, that's part of the problem with that. Like we can never, uh, we can never find it. We can never uh, attain it using our ordinary run-of-the-mill, uh, uh, you might call it, weapons of warfare for engaging in this kind of world. It takes a whole different set of implements. Uh, so we have to lay down certain tools, and we can't study war anymore. So to do this requires that we pay attention to what's going on around us. That's how we grow in knowledge. That's how we grow in, in understanding. And in um, understanding what? What is wholesome and what is unwholesome. We do this by observing. That's how we really know. I mean, we can hear it from a writer in a book, or whether it's Buddha or whoever, you know, but that's something that has been known by them directly. We can't read it in a book and get it. That's like looking at a picture of cake and like enjoying its taste. No, you have to eat it. Yeah. And so the greatest part of our practice is in the practice. <laughs> It's not in the studying. Studying is important, but studying is not cultivating. And our actions are based on our thoughts. And so he gives some idea for how we should think, which ways we should incline the mind. And it will become apparent to us if we, if we uh, uh, diligently and patiently wait on that. Uh, it will become apparent to us what is the right action to take. But 
the reason we make so many mistakes is that we're in an instant generation. Like, we want to fix it now. We want something to happen right now. Uh, the minute we see something, we make a judgment. We don't take time to look a little deeper and question our thoughts. And so he puts us on this whole pattern of slowing down, not making an immediate decision, not just looking with the eyes and catching a snapshot of something and think you know the thing altogether, not hearing one little thing and think that you are, are uh, you know, have figured out what the cause or what the reason or what the solution for something is. You know, he tells us this is where it all goes to pot. That's the way we normally flow and work and move and have our being in the world. But he's showing us a different way to be in the world. But it takes time to shift to become that. So for one who is a lover of the Dharma, it's those moments that life brings us where we have to stop and look, where we have to drop our critical thinking, where we have to set aside what we already know in order to be able to impartially see what's in front of us. That's the part that we enjoy. You know, like, whoop me some more. You know, because I don't like the one who moves ignorantly, who is thoughtless, who uh, uh, creates problems trying to fix it with all, all my might trying to fix it. And yet, you know, so who can redeem that one? Only that one. And he gives us a way of how to do that so that we don't continue out our last days uh, in our habitual patterns and our usual tendencies, but we can come up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of the ideal we have for how we want to live as human beings. It's nothing wrong with being a human being. It's be a good one. You know, it's nothing, nothing wrong with that. When one gets to that place, then I say to you, just be ordinary. You know, but before that time, I say to you, don't be ordinary. You know, strive for something more than that. But once you enter into it, then just be ordinary. Like, like the president just dropped the mic. You know? uh, but... Sometimes we have difficulty going back or entering into a new space of ordinariness. Because in the process, we have uh, found something sublime. And grasping and cleaving to it, we have actually taken a good thing and become tainted by it. This is the complexity of spiritual development. And so we have to be very circumspect and look very carefully, not out there, but in here, to know what we're packing onto that framework that the sages have given us. So this kind of observation demands a, a certain kind of curiosity. 
you know, just enough to look or listen, to simply see or hear what's right in front of us, you know, without judging it, without demanding, without trying to change it, without thinking even that it needs fixing, you know, uh, or, or without thinking that I can fix it, that whatever it is. I tell you I have no illusions that I can fix anything or anybody, or anybody, really. But if we have that idea, then we create a problem. You know, uh, uh, can, can you see that? It's difficult. Um, it challenges our perceptions, our habitual ways of seeing things and thinking, and it redirects us to questioning not what we see out here, but it challenges us to question our own thoughts and our own conclusions. This, this is true practice. Cultivating right intention and right attention. <laughs> Anything beyond this is eye making. And that's that little chasm that we have to cross. That one we have to cross by ourselves. We can, we can take refuge in holy beings, but crossing that chasm where we abandon the I, the I-ness, the I, the me and the mine. That's our work. And, and it creates something. It's like it's just a little troublemaking, you know? Troublemaking in the sense of, of creating a little confusion and diverting some people's attention from their path, thinking all the while that I'm being helpful. I'm being supportive. So in Sutta number 78, in the Majima Nikaya, uh, there were a whole lot of different ascetics gathered in a, in, a, uh, in a park or forest. And then they saw one of the Buddha's disciples coming. And they said, oh, that's one of the Buddha's disciples. You know, they were all like talking, 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 talking. And then he said, let's get quiet, because you know, like they like quiet. He said, let's get quiet and, and uh, see what he might have to say. I mean, they were always inquisitive. They wanted to know what someone else had to say about something. And then they would think and they would ponder that. You know, it's not what they had to say to somebody, but what someone had to say and they think and ponder that. Is that right view, wrong view? Is that right thinking, wrong thinking? Do I think like that? Do I need to banner that? Do I need to hold more tightly to that? That's how they were, when they came together, that's what they did. And so when he came up, they said, uh, perhaps if uh, uh, we are quiet, he finds our assembly a quiet one, he will think to join us. And they became silent. And he came and he sat down and they had a courteous, amiable talk, like, how are you? How's your family? Hope things are going good for you. Okay, that's enough. You know. We don't have to go on yet. Let me show you pictures of my granddaughter. And then we don't have to go into all that. Just, just the courtesies, you know, to say I care about you. Like, you know, you really do care, you know. And, and then they went on and began their spiritual conversation. And he said, Carpenter, because this guy is Carpenter. When a man possesses four qualities, I describe him as accomplished in what is wholesome, what is perfected, 
And um, I, I, I describe him as accomplished in what is wholesome, perfected in what is wholesome, an ascetic, invincible, attained to the supreme attainment. What for? Here he does no evil bodily actions. He utters no evil speech. He has no evil intentions, and he does not make his living by any evil livelihood. When a man possesses these four qualities, I describe him as accomplished in what is wholesome, as perfected in what is wholesome, uh, uh, as one who has attained the supreme attainment. So the Buddha's disciple listened. He neither approved it nor disapproved it. And without doing either of those, he rose to his, from his seat and went away thinking, I'll learn the meaning of this statement uh, in the presence of the Buddha. And so he went to the Buddha and he sat down and he uh, related the entire conversation that he'd had with this uh, other ascetic. And the Buddha said, well, if that was so, Carpenter, then a young tender infant lying prone is accomplished in what's wholesome, is perfected in what is wholesome, is attained to the supreme attainment according to uh, that wanderer's statement, because a baby doesn't even have the notion of a body, so how could he be doing evil bodily actions beyond mere wiggling? What can he do? A baby lying prone does not even have the notion of speech, so how could he utter evil speech? A baby. Uh, Lying prone does not even have the notion intention, so how could he have evil intentions? A baby does not even have a notion of livelihood. So how could he make his living uh, an evil livelihood? If that was so, Carpenter, a young tender infant lying prone is accomplished according to that wanderer's statements. He says, when a man possesses four qualities, these four, I describe him not as accomplished then, simply because um, he does no evil bodily actions, and he utters no evil speech, uh, and he has no evil intentions, and he does uh, no evil performs, no evil livelihood. He says, I don't ascribe to him holiness. I ascribe to him babyhood. He, just as a baby. He says, mm. but when a man possesses ten qualities, I describe him as accomplished. He says, first, it must be understood these are unwholesome habits. And unwholesome habits originate from this. And unwholesome habits cease by doing this. And one practicing in this way is practicing the way to the cessation of unwholesome 
actions. It takes a little bit more of an investigation. That's how we harm people unmeaningly. That's how we're so superficial with so easily carried away by what is the appearance of righteousness, do-goodiness, um, the manners and the projections that we have, that we don't go deep enough to really see what is down inside of us that causes us to act or think in such a way, in the way we do. And so this is not for everybody. Some folks want to stay on a superficial level. No harm, no foul. But some want to go deep. And this is where it takes you. We want to be more than just a baby who doesn't harm because we don't have a mental capacity to harm. But we want to know that we're truly harmless at the core because we have looked a little deeper we have truly questioned our thoughts. As that baby lying prone, we can't do anything to anybody. But as walking, talking, bodacious adults who have our own mind, our own will, our own money, and we can do whatever we want, we can do great damage, and we do great damage. So this is where he's encouraging. He says, and wholesome habits should be understood how they originate, which things uh, increase wholesomeness, and which things um, uh, take away from wholesomeness, and how to execute the cessation of the things that take away from wholesomeness. He says one practicing in this way is practicing the way truly to the cessation of, of unwholesomeness. He says, and how does, and how practicing does he practice the way? He said, one awakens zeal for the non-arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. And he makes an effort and he arouses zeal for the arising of wholesome states. And he subdues and uproots any arisen unwholesome states. And he fosters or generates unarisen wholesome states. That's those four efforts. Those are the four right efforts. He said, and that's the beginning of the deeper journey in spiritual life. And you got to love it. I mean, if you don't love it, you can't do it. It's too hard. But if you love it, this is what you're after. Then you will reach into it. And you'll be joyful when there is admonishment because you want to be right on the inside. So 
He said, and where do these wholesome habits cease without remainder? Here's the key. He said, they cease when one does not identify with his virtue. It is there that he understands as it actually is the final deliverance of mind, a deliverance by wisdom. That was when he has uprooted the notion of the I. And then there is doing, but there's no doer. And that is where the dharmic journey leads. So sometimes people come and they're very accomplished in what they have mastered, what they already know. And it doesn't take away from that. But there is something else being cultivated and developed here. And they have to find out what that is. And for most, they haven't heard it before. And it might even sound strange because we're like just used to living in the bliss, like the baby. But we don't want to be a baby forever. Remember when we were teenagers and moving towards adulthood? You know, uh, yeah, we could buy, borrow Pop's car. We could get some change from Mom. We could get food out the refrigerator. We had a bed to sleep in, and still we wanted to leave and have our own place. We live in a dive just to say it was ours. You know, because there is something within us that is constantly moving towards uh, improving, towards self-mastery, towards coming into one's own. It is unavoidable. We say that one who doesn't, one who wants to be 50, 60, 70, and still relying on somebody else for, to take care of them, to, to do things need to be done, you know, we, we question their full capacity, uh, their full mental capacity. Uh, that's what brought me on this path, you know, because what I wanted to do, I didn't always do. And what I didn't want to do, I did that a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, how can I be delivered from this? How can I make my thoughts, my speech, my action agree? How can I really live the way I want to live? I need some help. And it's more than just relying on somebody else because I've been relying on them. And I have no problems with them. But I tell you, I sure can't rely on me. I'd like to be able to rely on myself. And I had to undertake a different level, a different grade of teaching. And so <clears throat> the Buddha said that when a man possesses these qualities, I describe him as accomplished in what is wholesome, perfected, and a supreme attainment. And he said, when one gets like this, he is possessing the right view of one who has now moved beyond training. The right intention of one who is beyond training. 
the right speech of one who is beyond training, the right livelihood of one who is beyond training, the right effort of one beyond training, the right mindfulness of one beyond training, the right concentration, the right knowledge, and the right deliverance of one beyond training. When a man possesses these ten qualities, this is what the Buddha said, and the carpenter was satisfied and delighted in it, and he continued with his practice. So today, I'd like to encourage you to continue in your practice. <coughs> there are two kinds of order. There's a contrived order or a superficial order, and there's a natural order. The natural order always outlasts the contrived order. You can look in nature and you can see that. You can look at social constructs, and you can see that. You know, we have to understand energy, the vibration of natural order. Like, like, consider a manicured lawn. I wish this was not so, because then I would have to pay for somebody to come cut the grass every two weeks. I would have, you know, they got the edge trim. They got all of these things, just to keep it, because if you let it go beyond two weeks, it looks a mess. It looks disorderly because it's a contrived natural order. It's one we made up and put, or somebody did, and put together. I'm constantly thinking about how I can bring mounds of dirt and throw some seeds and let a wilderness grow up here. And then when people come, they'll say, oh, this is like being in the forest. This is so great. And I wouldn't have to be cutting the grass, spending $1,000 a month landscaping. But... That's a work in progress. So, so we, you know, everything is set just so. Everything's so neatly laid out in the gardens here when we came. And this was a certain kind of order. And when we trim and when we cut and when we prune, it looks beautiful. But leave it unattended for a month, and it's terrible. Now compare this to the forest. Forest has its old trees, and it has its young trees. It has its bushes, and it has its leaves. There's no leaf blower in the forest. Some of the leaves, it's, the, some of the bushes are dead. Some are alive. It seems all so perfect, though, and so peaceful and magnificent to us, yet no one is tending it, no one's giving it a superficial order. There's birth there and there's death there, and every stage in between. There's friend there and there is the foe there, because you have the frog who eats the butterfly, you know? We have the snake who swallows the frog. So there's friend and foe there, yet everything seems as it should be. There's an organic harmony, you know, that's palpable. They're not like all wooden soldiers, you know, uh, not all looking the same, walking the same, talking the same, being the same. But an organic harmony, this is, it's naked and it's real. 
and not only just the, the living creature scale, but there's an undeniable dance of the elements in the forest, the earth, the air, the fire, the water in that space. And these are the very same elements that we are composed of. So what if we considered a sangha, a congregation, or a spiritual community like a forest? There is earth there, that which is solid, that which is stable. There is a certain hardness or certain roughness there. But it provides a landing uh, space. There is the air. So there is the pushing or the supporting or the uplifting or the sustaining. There's the fire there. It's the, that which creates and uh, transforms, and it does it through consuming, you know, only like uh, digestion. I mean, the only way that we can, you know, food is just not fuel until the digestive process takes over and converts it into something that is useful to make the body keep running. You know? uh, and then there's the water element, just flowing. Uh, but not just flowing, but there's a, a cohesion to water. It holds things together. Like if you just touch your finger, it's a little stickiness. It, there is a cohesion to water. We always think it's like washing everything away. Actually, if you look a little deeper, you find that water has a quality of holding things together, cohesive. And it's done within space, like a container for all of this activity to display its qualities or characteristics. So that means you find all kinds of people in a sangha. You'll find you know, all kinds of activities present. Or you could liken it to a field then, where there's wheat and there's weeds. <laughs> Why? Because of cross-pollination. Mm -hmm. The genuine and the counterfeit, always together. This is, this is a truism. Yeah. But in due season, they get separated. And those who have increased in their understanding through diligence and observation remain steady and firm, and others sashay in and out, coming and going in self-importance, and in befuddlement. Never finding what they were looking for because they can't surrender what they already think and already know. In Buddha Dasa's book, Life is a Prison, he mentioned the three most insidious pr prisons. Does anybody remember what they are? Insidious prisons. Like actual prisons? Uh, what, the book that we, we did a study on life is a prison. We talked about the things that bind us. Wrong cue? Mm, nope. Good guess, though. <laughs> Anger? Nope. Nostalgia? The idea of I? <laughs> oh, but that's one of them, yes. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Said purity or virtue is a prison. Knowledge is a prison. 
and eye making is a prison. Now, we, we don't think that these are prisons because having a, a good sense of self a, and a strong and healthy self-esteem, uh, excelling in knowledge and, ver and increasing in virtue seem like really good attributes to have. And he says, they are until we attach to them. Then they become so big that we can't see past them. And so our virtue becomes a hindrance and a stumbling block. I am so virtuous so holy, so wise, so know, all-knowing. We get stumbled by what we already know. And we lose that sense of, of uh, earnest inquiry and the capacity even to laugh at ourselves, to stumble and keep going, or to grab somebody when they're stumbling instead of saying, you shouldn't do that. It makes us stayed. And the very thing that we think we have, we don't realize that we are, have already lost. So this takes some looking at, and I ask you the question today, what are you looking for? And why are you here? It's a serious question because some people are giving their whole lives for this. And we don't mind doing that. Because the less we think that we are doing something, the freer we become. But don't miss the great opportunity to go beyond whatever virtue you hold, whatever knowledge and wisdom you have amassed, don't miss this opportunity because that can be found here. We sing and we dance. We play you know, and we fellowship. We do all of those things. You can go anywhere and they do those things. But there's something else we do when we come here. And I'd like to ask you to be ready, to be open to self-inquiry. I ask you to not come looking for like-minded people that you can draw away for your own project or your activity. If they came here, leave them alone. Let them get what they came for. If you have something to offer, go out and find people who are looking, not people who've come in and are trying to apply themselves to something. Don't discourage them in their journey. Don't take them off thinking you know what they need. If I were going to start a church, 
this is a kind of church, you might call it a Buddhist church. I wouldn't go to other churches and look for people and bring them to mine. I'm just saying, this is when you go deeper, even when we have good intentions, when we go deeper, we can see where there is, even in our good intentions, some imbalance in wisdom and understanding. So this was a very sober conversation today. It was difficult for me to give it, but my job is to be the watcher, the observer. The observer. That's my role here. Otherwise, I have no reason to be here. And I hope you can receive it in the way that I've given it. Have zeal, but with all your getting, get understanding. <clears throat> the contemplative life is an inward life. It's one of uh, continually clearing our own clutter. Yeah. And the more we do it, the more we can be truly available without an agenda. We don't even know sometimes that we have an agenda. Because we, we haven't dug deep enough to see it. But those who are wise, who have applied themselves to these 10 measures that the Buddha talked about today, they can see and they can know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.